Welcome to another episode of Think Arctic, a podcast powered by GCI that tackles the biggest issues facing the Arctic and its stakeholders. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Holly Noland. In this episode, we speak with former FCC Commissioner Robert McDowell, who now leads the Arctic Economic Council Telecommunications Working Group. Robert, thank you for joining us. Let's start by talking about your role at the Arctic Economic Council. We wanted to put together an assessment of the state of broadband in the Arctic, uh, really a first ever in world history, uh, and then make some recommendations as to how we can advance uh, the deployment and adoption of broadband throughout the Arctic, through all eight nations. So it was a fascinating process. Uh, worked with uh, people and cultures from all eight, eight Arctic nations. And uh, we produced a, a document um, in Tromsø, Norway, uh, in January at the Arctic Frontiers Conference. But there's a lot of work in between the two. Tell us more about the state of broadband in the Arctic. Absolutely. So first of all, uh, there are uh, have been a lot of efforts to deploy broadband in the Arctic. Uh, the United States is perhaps the furthest behind of the eight Arctic nations. Maybe Russia is tied with us. Um, and we, of course, have Alaska that lies, uh, is the only part of our territory that lies north of the Arctic Circle. Uh, the Scandinavian countries uh, have been doing a terrific job comparatively, uh, Finland in particular. Um, and there are a number of models that we examined. Uh, there is the completely government-owned and operated and funded model. Um, there is the other extreme, which is pure private risk capital model. And there are hybrids of that, sort of public-private partnerships that could involve subsidies, loans, um, indirect subsidies where broadband providers use government institutions as anchor institutions. So that could be a military base or search and rescue uh, base or schools or libraries, hospitals, things like that that receive government funding uh, directly or ind- indirectly, sort of government-influenced. Uh, So there are a number of ways where you can indirectly or directly uh, finance this. Um, One of the other things we also look at, though, and we flag, and I wanted to go out of my way to flag this, which is there are many wonderful benefits that will come from broadband and do come from broadband. But when you are thrust from not having it to all of a sudden having it at, let's say, fiber speeds, fiber connectivity, super high speeds, to where you can download anything off the Internet, there will be a culture shock. There has been a culture shock for the rest of the world and every other culture. So for anyone living north of the Arctic Circle who has not had broadband connectivity, uh, we need to be careful. There are wonderful things that come with broadband connectivity and there are some bad things that come with it. Uh, I like to analogize it to fire. Fire can give you light and warmth. It can boil your water, cook your food, heat your home, and it can also burn down your home and kill you. Um, so uh, broadband connectivity and the content that comes with it um, can give you both very good things and very bad things. Net-net, I'm a big optimist. I totally believe that net-net, it's a big positive. Um, so another thing we examine, too, is how can it transform the Arctic economy? And that could be in a number of different ways. Um, the, uh, the ability to advance a tech-oriented economy is massive. Uh, It could be everything from locating data centers north of the Arctic Circle uh, for redundant storage of data uh, as Finland and Iceland and and other uh, countries have done, Norway, Sweden, have done north of the Arctic Circle. 
um, to an app-driven economy. Go to app, app developers, code, people who write code. Um, so if you think of some of the more insular Arctic regions as island economies, if you think of Japan in the 1960s and 70s, it started to repurpose and reorient it, its uh, regulatory and tax structure because it was an island economy. It had to import almost everything. And it, it created a knowledge-based economy. Um, if you look at Ireland in the 80s and 90s, same thing, uh, a knowledge-based economy. So if you think of the Arctic as an island, which it, not all of it is, uh, but it has been cut off in, in many different ways from the rest of the planet, um, there are tremendous uh, opportunities there if we use uh, some success stories that, from which we can draw analogies. Um, but that's going to take a real circumpolar effort, uh, a lot of information sharing, uh, and this is vitally important because there's going to be more human activity in the Arctic in the coming years. Uh, there'll be population growth, more economic activity, more geopolitical activity as well, search and rescue, more tourism, all the rest. Um, so you're going to need more broadband up there. Uh, and keep in mind that uh, it's predominantly a clean technology, uh, very green, um, and can help bring efficiencies uh, and all sorts of a, of a wealth of information and a cornucopia of opportunity that we don't have right now in the Arctic. Now, what recommendations have been made following this assessment of broadband in the Arctic? So the recommendations were what, you know, so the Arctic Economic Council is more of a private sector-oriented group, right, versus the Arctic Council, which is intergovernmental, uh, it's the governments and the foreign ministries, et cetera. So it looked at private sector solutions. It, it's sort of bias, if you will, which it states in the document, uh, and you can find it on the Arctic Economic Council's website, uh, is to look for private sector solutions. Um, so we use, a, we, we look at, uh, examine a lot of different uh, private sector initiatives, such as the Quintilian Project, uh, for one. Um, and it talks about uh, the need to modernize uh, regulatory and tax structures uh, in the Arctic, uh, while also preserving the environment and, and making sure things are, are protected, whether it's the environment or native cultures or uh, uh, burial grounds or all sorts of things. Um, but there are an incredible number, just to take Alaska as one example, uh, a number of uh, regulatory uh, barriers. Uh, the Quintilian uh, folks will tell you they've had something like 250 to 300 uh, permits uh, that they've had to put in at the local level, the state level, and the federal level. You have a lot of overlapping bureaucracy, and it would be nice to simplify that. Let's meet all the statutory intent, the legislative intent of protecting whatever we need to protect, but do we need to have redundant forms and uh, multiple bureaucracies looking at the same action that you want to do? So the, the document goes into that. Um, it also goes into whether there can be any tax relief um, for, to, to help stimulate uh, deployment and adoption, ultimately, in these areas. Um, and uh, it, it talks about, you know, there are obviously national governments and regional governments and local governments that all have a say in this, but can we start speaking with one unified voice uh, to promote the Arctic and have some things in common? Uh, and I think the answer is yes. I mean, it was a wonderful group to work with. We assembled a, a tremendous body of very smart people, people much smarter and more knowledgeable than I am, about these issues, and they did a terrific job of uh, assimilating uh, data that was already out there and giving us their own thoughts and opinions, and we condensed it into a pretty uh, compact document. You touched on the culture shock experienced with the introduction of broadband. What can be done to ensure the transition goes smoothly? 
Absolutely. So we discuss in the document um, the need for education. So education in part digital literacy, um, uh, as well as online safety. It could be privacy. It could be protecting your kids from inappropriate content that they might see. Uh, it could be a lot of different things. Uh, but just so people understand um, the perils of this wonderful, uh, relatively new medium. Um, and that's going to take the work of governments and the private sector and non-governmental NGOs uh, and uh, all of us sort of working together uh, to quickly uh, educate uh, these communities. Um, it also, I think, will help uh, spur broadband adoption. It's one thing to build the facilities and have it out there. It's another to get people to use it. Um, and we have found in the lower 48 that sometimes it's a matter of cost uh, that it just becomes too expensive. But as we build more facilities, those costs are going to come down dramatically and, and just suddenly. Um, but it can also just be an, uh, a matter of uh, are you aware of how connectivity can make your life easier? Uh, you could be selling goods. You know, there's e-commerce, for instance. We haven't even talked about that. Uh, that could be huge for uh, certainly the, the Arctic uh, slope of Alaska uh, and, and other places. Um, so that's one reason to then have connectivity. It could be that you are working for some company that's across the globe or in another part of the U.S. or another, another part of wherever. Um, but you can do that from home uh, in your village if you have connectivity. And people just may or may not be aware of that, but making them aware of these opportunities and how they can be empowered by having this connectivity is, is huge. But we need to do it quickly, you know, as the, <laughs> as the fiber is being lit. Uh, we need to make sure right away that people understand. And it also could be little stuff like, you know, okay, you're going to actually have smartphones for the first time you have the smartphone, but you might not have the, uh, the 4G uh, connectivity. Now you're actually going to have mobile broadband, true mobile broadband. So what's that going to mean with your kids? Let me tell you from my personal experience, it means they're looking at their devices a lot. And uh, so uh, just keep that in mind. You know, what's the dinner table culture within your family going to be like? And are you going to have a rule of, you know, no devices during dinner or whatever? So all those little things too, which can be big things. So. Now, I imagine you hear a lot of stories about how broadband is impacting Arctic communities. Can you share a story about how broadband is changing lives? Well, it's changing lives and, and literally saving lives. So, for instance, after the uh, Haitian earthquake of a few years ago, there's the story of a man who was trapped in the rubble um, and his uh, leg had been partially severed and he was bleeding to death. But he was able to reach his smartphone and look up uh, through broadband connectivity how to make a tourniquet. So he was trapped in the rubble. He couldn't get out. People didn't know he was there. And he did that and it literally saved his life. Uh, and if he hadn't had that connectivity, he would have bled to death. Uh, that's one very important uh, granular uh, example. Um, but I'll always remember uh, when I uh, was an FCC commissioner, I visited Barrow in the wintertime, Barrow, Alaska. And um, there was uh, a little boy, and I wish I knew who he was, uh, who came up to me to say, when are we gonna get broadband in Barrow? This must have been in 2009. And he said, because I'm a gamer, I like to game. And he wants to, you know, play games with people across the globe um, online. And he can't really do that uh, with the uh, low uh, or the high latency, the slow, uh, you know, narrow band, the, the slow speeds that uh, Barrow is, is stuck with right now. 
So, you know, there is the entertainment aspect of things, too. Uh, and um, they'll be able to see movies and all the rest. But I think the, the biggest um, positive effect will be education. There's just going to be a tremendous amount of opportunity to cross-connect and cross-pollinate from a school in a re very remote or insular area with a major university or some school in New York City or whatever. So you can go see the art at the Met or go talk to scientists at MIT or, or whatever the case might be in real time. And that is, uh, that offers the most hope and potential. What excites you most right now about innovation in the Arctic? I think what is the most exciting for me is the unknown. Uh, that if you and the rest of the world could turn the, the calendar back 15 or 20 years, uh, we could not have predicted all of the things that would come forth uh, because of the internet and especially the mobile internet. Um, this year is the 10th anniversary of the debut of the iPhone, for instance, the first real smartphone. So if you go back 11 years ago even, our world was very different. Um, and the growth of the app economy and all the efficiencies uh, and productivity that comes with new apps, for instance. We couldn't have imagined in the year 2006, which was the year I was sworn in uh, to be an FCC commissioner. So the exciting, most exciting thing, I think, is what's coming over the horizon. We don't even know. Uh, and this, uh, uh, the, the, the mobile internet in particular offers great hope and opportunity, and it's very, very exciting. Thank you, Robert, and thank you, listeners, for joining us for another episode of Think Arctic. You can find our bi-weekly podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spreaker. Until next time.